We are in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we are going to begin one of the saddest stories in the Bible. Uh, And it's a story that starts out hopelessly, uh, in which evil takes place in the heart of a great man, in which we see that even people who are godly people, who are sold out for God, will fall anyway, because that's the way nature of flesh. And this is a lesson that resonates as much today uh, as it did a thousand years ago. Uh, it's actually, uh, you know, really 3,000 years ago. And so as we study this, we study this, we want to focus on the fact that we're not studying a historical event. We're studying an event that while it took place historically, that the truth from that event remains ever so truthful even today for each and every one of us. And so what we'll see here is as we left off David last week, in which God is telling him, I am making an unconditional covenant with you that you, your kingdom will remain forever. Effectively, the Messiah will come out of your lineage. And the, the amazing thing is this, that when God said that, don't you think that God saw down the road and knew what David would do? He knew what David would do. He saw where David would fall. And yet God sees the heart. And so here is the the hopeful message for us, that even as we fall, as we love God, uh, and we ask for forgiveness, that God pours his grace and forgiveness into our heart. As you see here with David in this this story that's really one of the worst stories in the Bible, uh, as David will commit adultery, and then he will follow that up in covering up his sin and will be involved in murder. Uh, and so when you think about your own life and the things that you may have done, uh, you, you look at this example, and most of us, I would say, probably didn't fall to this level, but some of us may have, and I want you to recognize that God has forgiven you. God has forgiven you if, in fact, you have asked for forgiveness. So turn, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read a number of verses first. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man, said, the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to the house. 
When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Why haven't you just come from a, a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to the house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah in a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. Uh, he instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Now skip down, please, um, and go to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done had displeased the Lord. What an awful story. What an awful story uh, that you see here. As David is committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then he winds up killing Uriah in order to hide his sin. One sin compounding another. You, you, when you read this, you, you find it difficult to believe that a man who loves God as much as David does would fall to this. And that's the ultimate message for us as men. That the fact that you love God does not negate the fact that you carry around flesh. That you're weak. And if any of us ever gets to the point where we think, I could never do this, I would never do this, I'm immune from this sin, all I would tell you is that each of us has our Achilles heel as it relates to some sin issue. I don't know what yours is, but we each have an Achilles heel. And the Achilles heel with David uh, was primarily women. He had an issue with women. And we know that even before this because he had taken even multiple wives. We know that, and, and it's one of the things that God had warned uh, the leadership about, about the kings being careful not to do that, and yet he had done that. He had taken multiple lives, and we'll see that even with his son, Solomon, who I believe they say had a thousand wives and concubines. And even though God had granted him great gifts of wisdom, he would ultimately fall, and his fall would be because of that very event. So don't approach this story and say, as you read this story, this could never happen to me. This would never happen to me. I love you, God. I follow the commandments. I would never do this. No, the reason this story is in the Bible is because, in fact, it does happen to us. Uh, and the message here is to be aware of how it happens. Uh, and so this is, this is about developing our spiritual life. It is a very human story 
but it's important for you to understand that it does apply to you. Now, the opening of this story involves the military conflict with the Ammonites. And the Ammonites were an enemy of Israel, and they retreated to the walls of the royal city. Uh, and thereupon, they were, they were being besieged uh, at Rabbah. And so what happens? The story opens up that David remains in Jerusalem. He remains in Jerusalem while he sends his army out to fight the battles of God. He remains alone in Jerusalem instead of being with God's army. David had always gone out with God's army. And, and what this tells me is that it was the idleness of not being part of the people of God, separating oneself, becoming effectively a lone ranger, isolating yourself from the people of God where, where trouble begins. Because you see, here's what it is. When we gather together like this, or worship in church, and we are part of a community of believers. There are people who support us, who pray for us, who speak wisdom into our heart. But when you get to the point where you're the king, and you don't have to do that, and you send others out to fight the battle, and you're not out there with them, immediately you're isolating yourself. And the first step towards destruction is isolation. I can't find any where in the Bible, where the isolation issue uh, is, is a hopeful, helpful spiritual issue. It is not. He should have been out there with the army. He should have been with the people of God. That was where God wanted him to be, and he decided he would not do that. And so as he's out there alone, uh, the Bible tells us here in, in verse uh, 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. Now, let's unpack that. Do you think that this was the first time David walked around the roof of the palace at night? No. All right? No. He did not. And, and we know historically that the king's palace was the highest point in Jerusalem. And so from that roof, he could survey all of the other homes around them. And so I'm sure as he walked up there, knowing that he had a proclivity towards women, he liked the view. And I'm not referring to the mountains in the distance, if you get my drift. He liked what he saw. And here's the thing. I believe, and the Bible doesn't tell me this, but I believe it, because nobody ever commits this kind of a sin the first time. You understand that as parents, you know, your kids come home and say, oh, it's the first time I ever did it. You know, they're lying to you. It's never the first time that you get caught. It's going up time after time after time. And one of the reasons he didn't want to go and fight the battle with his army is he liked the roof better. The roof is better. I like the roof. I like the view. I like what I see. Now, here's the thing. Do you see how sin enters your heart? Now, I know you're thinking, this could never, ever. First of all, I don't even have a roof that I could walk up on. I live in a one-story house. I can't see anything up there. But here's your roof, your computer. Your computer, all right? It gives you a much better view than even David had at the roof. 
And so here it is. And so many godly men, even pastors, are hooked on pornography. They've recently done some studies that a staggering number of pastors have this issue that they become enslaved to pornography. And it's so easy. You understand this. You, you tell your wife, your wife goes to bed and you say, I have to do some research on the computer. Research. I didn't realize you were a research scientist. Yes, well, even though I may be retired, I like to go on the computer and it's late at night and you're by yourself again, by yourself. You're by yourself and now you're beginning to navigate the portals on the internet and you find these horrendous sites. And as you see it, just as David saw Bathsheba, your eyes see, your eyes see, and instead of shutting it down and walking away and asking God to protect you, God to deliver you from this, you get sucked in, all right? The lust brings you in, and you're not alone. I don't want you to think, oh, this is only my little issue. No, we all suffer from some form of lust. But the difference is that some of us recognize it right away and it's got to deliver us right away and pray for strength, and he does. And David didn't do that. And so there he is walking around, and I, and I presume that he walked on that point very often, walked around very often on that house, and he saw a Bathsheba. Now let me talk about Bathsheba, because you don't often hear people uh, preach about Bathsheba. Bathsheba has culpability here. All right? This isn't just about David. I am sure that Bathsheba knew quite well that there were people up on the rooftop looking at her. All right? I'm sure of that. And so she's bathing at a time that she's aware that he's up there. I also read that you could have bathed indoors. All right? There were, there were, during that period of time, it was not uncommon to bathe indoors, but she decided to bathe outdoors. So clearly, she's sending out messages herself. Now, your defense to, the, to God is that not that Bathsheba made me do it, all right? Because you're still guilty, all right? Your sin is not abated because maybe somebody else made the first step because God expects you to be a man of God and shut it down. But she has culpability as well uh, in terms of of putting herself as an object of desire and displaying her body, and she was obviously beautiful. And so here you see two very flawed people, uh, and what happens? Sin is ignited. Sin takes place. Uh, and so he inquires, who is that woman? Who is that woman? And, and so who is that woman? And so he's told that woman is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah the Hittite was one of his most loyal soldiers, all right? Can you imagine the, the depravity of the sin where not only do you, do you wind up committing adultery, but you do it with the wife of a guy who's one of your most loyal supporters? This gets worse. This is just horrible. I feel like I need to take a shower right now even while I'm speaking this, all right? This story is awful, and yet, does that stop him? No, it doesn't stop him. Why? Because he's obsessed with Bathsheba. Look, this isn't the kind of message you can preach on Sunday morning in church. This is a message made perfect for this group. All right? 
Because we can talk about exactly what's going on here and how depraved it is. So knowing notwithstanding, it's Uriah's wife. He doesn't care. He moves forward. He brings her to the palace. And she comes. Now, I know some of you may say, well, how could she turn the king down? She could find ways, I believe, of doing that. But she decided she would come. She could have gone to the palace, and when he put some moves on her, she could have said, right, I'm I'm married. I can't do that. That's out of place. But you see what happens, how sin takes place. You know, you have two willing partners who are both giving in to sin. It's not a sin to have the urge. Let's get that clear. It's not the sin to have the vision. It's not the sin to have the spark, but it's the sin to complete the act. Let's understand this. It's the sin to complete the act. And so you see this. He brings her, he brings her back uh, to the palace, uh, and she sleeps with him. Uh, and then she goes home, and she tells him, she tells him, I'm a short couple of months later, I'm pregnant, and now this is a problem because her husband is away in battle. He's not home. How could she get pregnant from her husband if he's not around? So David immediately understands the enormity of this uh, and understands that he has to do something to protect himself. He's immediately concerned about his reputation. My reputation, what will people think? What will the rumors be? And, and so you understand that now sin begats another sin, and it's so amazing. And by, and by the way, uh, I want you to understand something, that, uh, that the law of Moses commanded the death penalty for adultery, the death penalty. Turn to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Is that pretty clear? Okay. It's not like today and you get put on a television program. Okay. They actually took morality seriously then. God was serious. You commit adultery, both, both the man and the woman are to die. So David is aware of this. Of course, it's interesting how uh, none, of these, none of this uh, penalty was ever inflicted about to David. Uh, and I guess the king in some ways is immune from, the, from that law. But he's not immune from the law of God itself. And so God sees everything. So even though we try to hide it, we little try to hide our little sins. I'll cover it up. And you know, this David's pretty smart. I'm going to bring Uriah back home. I'll make him, he'll, he'll be available. He'll get him, I'll make him sleep with his wife. Then I'm covered. Nobody will ever know that I am the father of that kid. I will have escaped. Yes, you will have escaped. But God sees all. That's one of the lessons here also, that don't think that your own machinations will ever prevent your sin from being discovered. No, it will not. Sin will come out, uh, and all the time, and one of the things that I've studied this is that during this period of time, during this whole period of time, uh, up to and including the birth of that child, and ultimately that child will die in a, in a very young age, David wrote no psalms. It's, all, it's as if he's, he's cut down. There's one psalm that he wrote, which we're going to study, Psalm 38, as part of this lesson, 
But other than that, he did not write any psalms. It was as if his communication with God is shut down. And that's one of the things that sin does. Sin causes an occlusion between your relationship and God. When you have sin in your heart and you have not repented, you cannot be used by God. God will not elevate you. And your ability to pray and to have your prayers answered is shut down. That's a fact. And so I want you to think about that, even to the nature of the extent that some of us may be hiding things compartmentalized in our lives right now. There are no secret closets to God. He sees it all. And, and so that's where this story really, uh, really resonates with him. And so he sends for him, for her. He commits adultery. Now he devises this plan uh, that he thought would cover his sin. Uh, and that's in verses uh, 6 and thereafter. He orders Uriah to return to Jerusalem, to return to Jerusalem, uh, which was about 40 miles away from the site that, that they were fighting. And so he returns, he travels 40 miles, and I imagine that Uriah was probably perplexed when David asked him, so how, how's it going out there? How's it going? You just called me back 40 miles? To find out how's it going? There were any number of other messengers you could have sent. Uriah was one of the top fighters. Uh, and I'm sure he wondered, why is he doing this? Why is he sending that? But you see how you get, you devi your, your mind becomes so devious and you don't even have the clarity to recognize how stupid this whole thing looks. How's the war going? Uh, and, and so, you know, uh, Uriah must have been perplexed. And so he has this thing. And so then David tells him, Go, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, I didn't realize this until I had done more studying, but the terminology, well, washing your feet uh, in that expression, in that period of time, meant go and have sexual intercourse with your wife. Yes, that's what it means. Washing your feet, is, uh, according to most uh, commentators, meant go home and have sexual intercourse with with your wife. It was a euphemism. David's plan was that Uriah would spend a night at home with his wife. Uh, and, and, and so as he did this, he wanted him to have an enjoyable evening with his wife. He even sent gifts of food that he could bring with him uh, to his wife. He, he did everything he possibly could except light a couple of candles uh, and have a bottle of wine on a table. You understand? I mean, can you imagine? You're the king. God has made a covenant with you. You are going to be in the line of the Messiah, and you're doing this? You're doing this? I mean, it's like, I, it's like you're staggered. But God wants you to be staggered. He wants you to recognize that this is the potential depravity of man, that even as God is using you, as he's given you gifts, given you ministry, giving you blessings, that still we have the potential to fall. And so here this guy is Uriah, uh, and, and because he is so loyal and dutiful, he refuses, he refuses to go and sleep with the wife. He stays outside of the house. He stays at the palace uh, and sleeps outside because he, he is a, a man of honor and looks at the fact that the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent and the men he had fought with were in a tent. How dare he not be in a tent. You have to admire Uriah the Hittite uh, during this period. 
and so David's whole plan there is now coming apart. This guy's not cooperating. He's not going along with the plan. This is becoming a problem. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this grows and manifests itself. Uh, it says there in verse 9, Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all the master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked, why haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? He's annoyed. Why didn't you go home? Uh, and Uriah makes this great state, statement. The ark, and, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Job and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. All right? You figured? It's done. No, it's not. It's not done. It's not done. Because I want to cover up my sin. I'm not finished. I'll go further. How will I go further? A second night. Now I'll bring him back. Now I'm going to get him drunk. Okay? I'm going to get him drunk so that he'll lose his uh, sensibility about going home. I'll get him drunk, and as I get him drunk, I'll, I'll send him back to his house, and now he'll go. And yes, he did get him drunk. He got him drunk, but this guy still would not do it. I admire this guy. He still would not do it. He was a very moral man. He refused to, to, to do it. Uh, and, and so... Uh, you, you see this in verse 12. Then David said to him, stay here one more night, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. He would not uh, bend. So now we get the next step of sin. And the next step of sin is this didn't work. I'm going to kill Uriah. And here's, here's the thing. It may not have been murder in the first degree, although I think it probably could be. Uh, it most, secondly, most certainly would be second degree murder. But here he conspires. Here he conspires to have Uriah killed. And he and brings other people in as co-conspirators. He brings Joab, the general, in. And so he gives Uriah the letter, and the letter says... Put this guy in the front line where the battle is the fiercest, and when the battle rages, have all the other men pull back and leave him there alone so that he will get killed. How do you like that? How do you like that? Is this disgusting? That's how much the obsession for sin and lust had taken over this godly man's life. And I repeat, godly man's life. He remained a godly man even as he was sold out to this horrible sin. And so poor Uriah takes his own death warrant and carries it back because the letter is sealed, carries it back to Joab and what takes place? Well, what takes place is exactly what David envisioned. They put Uriah in the front lines. The battle is raging. It's the fiercest. They pull back and Uriah is killed. He's killed. And so now the word comes back uh, to David that he's killed. Uh, and we see here that Bathsheba mourns. Uh, and then within a short time thereafter, the mourning period, David takes Bathsheba and marries her, although he did give her time to mourn the death of her husband. It seemed to work. The plan seemed to work uh, in the eyes of men. But God was displeased. 
And so as you see this, what you don't see is you don't see what's raging in the heart of David during this period of time. And what I will say to you is this, that as men of God who have committed ourselves to God, when we sin like this, we are convicted of our sin. God convicts us. Now, today he convicts us because he sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that keeps you up at night, awake, and, and says to you, you, this is a terrible thing, you need to repent. And so we see this uh, rebuke and this terrible thing in Psalm 38. Turn to Psalm 38, if you would. This is a psalm written before David is confronted of his sin by the prophet Nathan. And this is, again, David's cry out to God to take away the pain, to take away the remorse. Uh, and so when we read this, I want you to put yourself in the, the shoes of David, knowing what he had done, and recognizing now that this man is coming to terms with his sin. O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Now, can you imagine? Lord, don't punish me. I know I've sinned, but don't punish me. Are you kidding me? Don't punish you? You, David, know God. You know the judgments of God. You know that when we sin, that there is a judgment. There is a judgment. There is, there is forgiveness, but yet there are judgments in this world, and, God, and David will pay. He will pay heavily. For your arrows have pierced me, and your hand has come down upon me. Now, what does that mean? God didn't do anything to him yet, not at this point. But what he's doing is he's being convicted. Every night, every day, the conviction of that sin percolates in him. And David recognizes that it's coming from God. Verse 3, because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. How do you like that? I, can't, I don't feel like I have any health. I'm failing. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. How's that? My guilt has overwhelmed me. The prophet hasn't gone to him yet and indicted. This is his private prayer language to God. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. Can there be any better explanation of why we should not sin? How, how even if you think you can get away with it, that you don't get away with anything. You are men of God. God holds you to a high standard. And you see the standard here. And he continues in verse 9. All my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds. My strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. Don't you think that everyone around him had a pretty good idea of what was going on? You understand? What do you think? You want to know what gossip is? There's gossip. They didn't affiliate with him. They didn't hang around with him. Why? Because they knew what he had done. They knew what he had done. They knew that Uriah had not come home. And now he's taking his wife into the palace. And she's obviously pregnant, uh, bearing a child. And they see him. They knew. 
And so what you see here is that even the, the, the gossiping is, is hurting him because of his reputation. Look, he knew that he was the anointed man of God. He knew that God had carried him through every possible battle, that God had brought him out from the pasture, and yet here he had violated God's will. Can there be any greater sin than breaking the heart of God? Honestly, is there any greater sin than breaking the heart of God? Really? When I think about this, and I think about the things that I've done in my life, even now, I'm, I just say, Father, forgive me. Thank you, Lord, that no matter what, how, what I did, that you forgave me and somehow allowed me to serve you. I don't understand how you do that, God, but you're God and you do that. And I know that that same message, that same prayer is, is resonating in your hearts right now. I don't want to know what you've done. You don't tell me. That's between you and God. But I'm giving you this lesson to show you that even at this moment of great depravity, God made his covenant unconditional. He would forgive him because in his heart, David would come back to God and beg for forgiveness because he loved God. And Saul never did. And that's the difference. Both men fall. Both men are human. Both men have flesh. But one man begged God to forgive him because he loved God dearly in his heart. He loved God dearly in his heart. Uh, and and, and he, verse 12, those who seek my life set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. Sure, they talk of your ruin. How could they not talk of your ruin after what you've done? You can imagine what's going on in the palace and his reputation. Verse 13, I am like a deaf man who cannot hear, like a mute who cannot open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, whose mouth has no reply. And then you look at verse 15. I wait for you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord, my God. And I can tell you that the answer is coming, and the answer is not going to be a good one. Okay? The answer is not going to be a good one. And the penalties will not be good. Uh, because this child that David will have with Bathsheba will be taken from him pretty much shortly after uh, that child is born. And David will beg and cry and besiege God to save that child. Uh, and he will be in sackcloth and ashes. And, and he will be broken. And yet God says, no, that child will be taken from you. Uh, and we're going to see that. And that, it's impacted David greatly. Furthermore, uh, bloodshed would never leave David's family. Even his own children would turn against him. Uh, and, and you're going to see this as we study it, that one of his sons, Absalom, will start a revolt against David to seek to take the kingdom from him. So David never even had that peace in his own family. Uh, and it all comes about, it all becomes about because of this sin, because God says, you are still saved, you are still a man of God, you are still in the lineage of Jesus, but there's a penalty. There's a penalty. You don't break God's laws and think that there's not a penalty. There is a penalty. So he's waiting here for God's answer. Uh, and, and, and it's a and it's so profound, as you see it, verse 17. For I am about to fall, and my pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Many are those who are my vigorous enemies. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Uh, and so you see this. Lord, verse 21, Lord, do not forsake me. Be not far from me, O my God. Come quickly to help me, O Lord, my Savior. Lord, I've sinned. Father, forgive me. 
Lord, I've done a terrible thing. And this is before, before the prophet Nathan will come to him uh, and publicly announce uh, that sin. And so this is an incredible passage. You see him actually getting sick physically, and you see that his loved ones, those supporters around him, apparently have abandoned him as the signs of the scandal grow. Uh, and, and undoubtedly, many whispers took place about the scandal, probably circulated among the court and his wives. Remember, he has other wives. What do you think the other wives are saying? As you see this revolt percolating in the, in the king, in the kingship, you see this cancer metastasizing, and that's what Stin does. Uh, and so... Not only that, but Ahithophel, who was one of his top advisors and generals, Ahithophel had to be offended because Bathsheba was his granddaughter. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Do you see how incestuous this whole thing is and how it's just percolating and permeating the whole kingdom of God in that, in that time in Israel? And so you, you, you look back and you see David is floored because of this sin. He is effectively paralyzed because of this sin. And so now the question is, what do we learn? What do we learn from this passage? What, what is God saying to us about sin? Well, uh, James, in James chapter 1, speaks about this issue. Turn, if you would, to James chapter 1, verse 14. Actually, we'll start with 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Does anybody seriously believe that God tempted David? This isn't God. This is, this is evil coming out of our own hearts. And look at how uh, it's referred to in Scripture, verse 14. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire... He is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Wow. You see the actual conception of sin coming from your lust and your deceptions. And how, as it's conceived, uh, effectively it's born out. And the result of of the sin in the event in the end stage, is death. And so each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and and enticed. So stage one is being drawn away. Lustful desire stirs the imagination. All right? It's not a sin to have an immediate lustful desire. All right? It's not a sin because something came into your mind. It's not a sin at that moment in time It's when you ask God to take these thoughts away from you and to protect you and deliver you and to make these things less desirable to you, God will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. If you say to God, Lord, help me. Father, I have a problem uh, with women. I have a problem with sexuality. Lord, deliver me from this. Shield my eyes. Protect me. God answers that prayer. But it's when instead, stage one, the lust comes in, uh, it stirs your imagination, uh, and what happens? Satan wants that fleeting thought of lust, that fleeting thought, to become a sustained thought or an obsession. It becomes 
a sustaining thought of obsession. That fleeting thought of that, that occurred to your mind or your eye. Now, now, what happens in stage one? Now it becomes an obsession. And as an obsession, you focus on it. Hour after hour. When you go to bed at night, that's what you wind up thinking. When you get up in the morning, that's what you're thinking. It becomes an obsession. Uh, and, and that's what Satan wants. There is a big difference, a major difference in our lives between a momentary wrongful thought as distinguished from being uh, brought away and captured by it. You are captured by it when that momentary thought becomes an obsession. Stage two now, stage two is being enticed with the lust. This occurs when one is entrenched in lustful fantasy. And so now it becomes an obsession, and then the obsession winds up entrenching you. You become effectively a slave to the obsession. All right, that's stage two. Stage three is now where the lustful desire is conceived. This is where the desire goes from the desire stage, the obsession stage, into the conception stage of how you will put it together. This happened when one, one, one decides and makes a decision to walk out the sinful action. Yes, you thought about it long enough. Yes, now that momentary thought has now become an obsession with you. Now that obsession has, be, has now enticed you in lust. Now it's at the stage where now you're planning to put it into effectuation. Now you're going to make it happen. You don't know exactly how you're going to do it, but you're going to make it happen. And so what happens here? A newly conceived act of sin can be alive in a believer and yet be unseen by others. What does that mean? It means this, that when you first commit the sin, nobody else really knows about it. Only you. People can't see the difference in your life. Only you recognize it. So you think you get away with it. You think, you, you, you think that you've been able to do what you want. You can do your own thing and still be God's man. I know, I know. Lord, you know I'm weak. You know, God, I love you. I just have this little weakness, and I know you created me, so I know you'll excuse this little peccadillo. It's just a little peccadillo, Father. No! You're talking to God. You're talking to your creator. No. Yeah, you can fool your neighbors. You can fool your neighbors. You'll fool the other people in church. You'll fool your pastor. You may even fool your wife. But you won't fool God. You won't fool God. All right? And so here you see, David made two premeditated sinful decisions. He sent for Bathsheba. And he murdered Uriah. You see how, how those lustful desires captured him and how they gave, they gave rise to this terrible sin. And so you see it. And stage four is where the, the desire gives birth to the sin, was we act out our lustful desires. Uh, and when we do this, uh, the spe specific features of the sin can be seen clearly, can be seen and, we, and what we have done is we've given Satan a door into our heart. This becomes huge. Now you've done this. Now you've committed this sin. Now effectively you've brought Satan into your heart. 
And now, now it gets worse because now you're not in the stage of repenting. Now you're in the stage of cover-up. Now you're in the stage of covering up. You don't, want, you don't want your reputation to be sullied. You don't want people to think ill of you. You don't want people to think that you're not a good man. And you want to do this, and, and, and in some ways, you've deceived yourselves to thinking that even God really, he'll cut me at some slack. He knows my heart. He knows that I love him. Uh, and yet what happens is Satan is in your heart, and now that Satan is in your heart, Satan is speaking into your ear, and now your, your prayer life is occluded. It's occluded. Because God can't communicate with you. You can't communicate with God because of the depravity of this sin. And so here it is now, stage five, as the sin becomes full-blown. And now that sin usually causes an addiction to sin. Because here's the thing, folks. It's never just one sin. You understand? Now, we're talking here about David, and this was enormous. But in our lives, we may be talking about what I would call lesser sins. And that's, I'm not going to sit here and give you a grading scale of which sins are lesser than others, okay? Sin is sin. That's what I've really finally understood by the Bible when I understand it. God sees sin uniformly, all right? Uh, and, and so now, now that sin gives rise to other sins because you're traveling a dark road. You've lost your ability to communicate to God. You've occluded your relationship, your prayer life. You've done all this because sin has now gotten into your life. And so what happens here, this, uh, these obsessions and lust grows, and it becomes a cancer. And it's taking you down. And as it's taking you down, you're taking your family down. You're taking your wife down. You're degrading your relationship. And your children are being... Do you see what happens? How one act can erode an entire family? Really. And I see this time and time again as I see good people whose families are destroyed by these things. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. That verse 31, while it's a long one, should go on your refrigerator. All right? You understand the nature of sin. David committed this horrible act of sin that percolated and metastasized and wound up in murder. But we all commit sins. Maybe ours is different. Uh, maybe ours is anger. Maybe ours is bitterness. Uh, maybe ours is rage. 
Uh, maybe we are gossipers or slanderers. And I want you to see here what, what, what the prescription is. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs. It starts with your tongue. It starts with your tongue. Are you uplifting? Are you uplifting God? Or have you become a professional critic? Because that winds up being sinful. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Look, you're saved. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. You have that inside you. And yet you are still capable of sinning. That's the message here today. I want every one of you to recognize that yes, you're saved. Yes, you're going to be with God Yes, I believe in eternal security, that salvation takes you forever. And notwithstanding all of that, we can walk out of here and fall and sin. And God is giving you that warning. And he's telling you how to stop it, how to protect it, to constant communication, constant prayer. We're going to continue this story when we resume in two weeks. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus I thank you for, for giving us the story of David. I thank you, Father, for this godly man. What an example to us, Lord, that even as you have made this unconditional covenant with him, that he will fall into this terrible sin. And yet we know, Father, that you forgave him because he came to you in brokenness with a broken spirit and begged for forgiveness. And you, God, are so generous that you recognize that we're weak. And yes, as we acknowledge our neediness and acknowledge our sin, you pour, you pour grace into our lives and continue to lift us up. There's not a single man here, Lord, that doesn't need your grace and forgiveness. We ask you right now, Father, to forgive us for what we have done, to make us mindful and sensitive to the issues in our life, to continue to keep our eyes on the cross every day of our life, to continue to lift up the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that needs us. Bless these men, protect them this week, and bring them back safely to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.